Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. In October of 2021, two podcasters disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while selecting the best films to shoot into space. At the time of recording, Paul and Amy are still missing. The film? 1999's The Blair Witch Project. everyone and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i'm paul Shear, and this is a podcast where we're endeavoring to find the hundred best films of all time we are looking all around the world through all different genres and right now we're in the middle of our horror genre our second horror genre where we are exploring different types of films and this one that we're talking about today the blair witch project really is a more important film than i think i even realized when we decided to do it. Paul, you have no idea how much that chills and thrills me to hear that I have been wanting to do this movie on the show for a very, very long time. I cannot wait to talk to you about it, but I also want to talk about the reaction to Raw, which was a very polarizing film. Um, A lot of people said that our conversation made them want to watch it. A lot of people said that they watched it and were so repulsed by it. Um... There's a lot of comparison between Raw and Titan, and people believe that Raw is better than Titan. There's a lot of conversation on the Discord. You can go to the Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear, uh, find the unspooled area there. And I was surprised because I thought that this would be a movie that everyone would be like, oh yes, it is a, a, a classic. It is something that you needed to talk about. But not so much. People had the same response that I had viscerally, but, uh, but then wound up not actually enjoying the film which I thought was interesting. Maybe emotions are just a little bit too raw, shall we say. Oh, boy. Because, I mean, we're about to talk about a movie that I think has gotten groans and eye rolls for two decades after it came out and was such a massive sensation. And now I think deserves to be really, really seen. And I'd say 
respected and seriously considered as a space contender. Ooh, all right. I like that. Well, without any further ado, Amy, I think we should unspool it. The year is 1999. Two students open fire at Columbine High School, killing 12 and injuring 21. Napster and MySpace are released. SpongeBob premieres. Bill Clinton is acquitted. Dr. Jack Kevorkian is sentenced to 10 to 25 years in prison on a charge of second-degree murder for participating in the physician-assisted suicide of a patient. And people around the world are biting their nails in anticipation of what might happen to computers on the dawn of the new millennium. That's right. Y2K was alive. Popular films are The Sixth Sense, Galaxy Quest, The Matrix, and today's film, The Blair Witch Project. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Who made it? Give me the scoop. I'll scoop you up, baby. Here we go. The Blair Witch Project was written and directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Uh, these two men put an ad in a casting directory that read, this is all caps, improvisational feature film, exclamation point. Seeking men and women 18 to 25 with a natural look, caps again, extremely challenging roles to be shot under very difficult conditions. 2,000 actors read that notice and said, I'll apply. And of the 2,000 who went through a really intense uh, interview process, all based on improv, Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, and Michael C. Williams were chosen. They were taken into the Maryland woods and they were sent off with the outline of a script, no dialogue. Uh, GPS trackers, uh, two cameras, and the knowledge that something very bad would happen every single day and that they had to get it on tape. The result, The Blair Witch Project, uh, the story of filmmakers making a film about a witch called The Blair Witch. Um, it looked like a snuff film and it was billed like a snuff film and it became the first majorly successful internet campaign that to me, I, I honestly believe is still like the best internet campaign ever done. I mean, the full website... Um, which can sort of still exist in some forms. They had um, interviews with the actors' moms, quote unquote. They had diaries that Heather wrote on set. Actually, she did write on set that I want to quote from later. And when this film premiered at Sundance, everyone flipped out. And then when it opened that summer, everybody really flipped out because this tiny $60,000 horror film made almost $250 million. Dollars. That is not bad for a movie with a witch that you never see and characters who deliberately, by design, drive you a little bit crazy. Take a listen. Okay, here's your motivation. You're lost. You're angry in the woods and no one here is here to help you. There's a fucking witch and she keeps leaving shit outside your door. There's no one here to help you. She left little trinkets. You fucking took one of them. She ran after us. There's no one here to help you. We walked for 15 hours today. We ended up in the same place. There's no one here to help you. That's your motivation. That's your motivation. Hey, stop. Josh, just quit it. She's had enough. Come on, man, you got her back. Good one. No, she's still making movies, man. That's my point. Please stop. This is my point here. It's all I fucking have left, okay? Just please stop. Now, Blair Witch, of course, inspired a found footage trend that conquered horror uh, like like a plague, like a virus, like witches leaving runes outside your door. So many films uh, in this kind of genre came out that I think over time, The Blair Witch Project has suffered a little bit. People people are mad at it for creating all of its spawn. I guess you could say that The Blair Witch Project itself did what the number one song did. 
that weekend on the charts when it came out on July 30th, 1999, it did a little bit of, of this. That's right. It opened a genie in a bottle. Thank you for that, Christina Aguilera. <laughs> and can I say that that song is still really, really good? Amy, I agree. There are some bangers in female pop hits in that time. I mean, I was a big Ashley Simpson fan, which I think is about the same time there, too. I think that was a time that Liz Fair also made her pop album, which, while being much maligned because it wasn't really a great Liz Fair album, it was a great pop album. You know... I, I I am in a period where I'm always questioning everything from this time, but I will let these songs live. Yeah, I think it is fair to say. I mean, look, if you don't own or you didn't own a now that's what I call music CD at this point in your life, uh, you know, you weren't living. You weren't embracing. <laughs> you know, it's like, I get it. We should all eat healthy. But, you know, now that's what I call music that I'm not going to I'm not going to say I didn't listen. No, I didn't love yeah. all the songs, but I got into it. I'm there. <laughs> but yeah. 1999, I would say, was a period of upheaval where the world felt a lot shakier than usual. I, I, I do remember the fear of like, we're entering a new millennium. What's going to happen? Everything felt nuts. It's getting expressed in movies like The Matrix, which is why I think it's interesting that the Blair Witch Project itself technically is a period piece, that it actually doesn't take place in 1999, that it takes place in 1994, that it jumps Whoa, back in time. The first I didn't realize Clinton that. Era. Yeah, the footage is supposedly all shot um, in October of 1994. Oh, of course, because it's found footage and it was been yeah. it had been living in the uh, the woods for such a long time. Um, yeah, the whole backstory, which was on their website, which you can still find, a very janky tam- timeline laid out, the kind with like bright red hyperlinks on a black backdrop. Oh, it's so, oh, it just makes me have shivers all down my spine. Uh, but on that timeline, they say that the team of filmmakers arrived to the woods on October 20th, that uh, the cops found Josh's car on the 25th of October. Um, After that, shortly, they sent 100 men into the woods. They had helicopters circling these Maryland woods. They searched for 10 days, and they finally called off the hunt for the filmmakers on November 5th of 1994. And it isn't for a year later. Um, On October 16th, 1995, that students from the University of Maryland Anthropology Department are going through the woods they find the haunted house from the end. They find the footage at the end um, in that house, along with like Heather's diary. The cops analyze it. They can't make any sense of it. They're like, I don't even know what to make to say happened here. So the crime, according to the website, continues to be listed as unsolved. And eventually the cops just gave the footage back to um, Heather's mother and the other boys. And it's Heather's mom who takes the footage to the producers of The Blair Witch and says, can you piece this together into anything that makes sense? This ruse was kept up to the point that on IMDb, when the film came out, it listed actually that all three actors were uh, considered missing. I mean, they really, they really doubled down on this. I mean, it caused such an uproar. Yeah. Heather's mom actually got condolence cards. People thought that she was dead. I, um, I, I don't know if I talked about it here on the show, but when I was doing shows in New York City, uh, Heather Donahue was friends with one of my friends. And she brought her to 
the UCB Theater to do monologues for ASCAT. And ASCAT was the staple Sunday night show where amazing guests would come in and uh, tell stories of their lives. And when Heather came in, it was... It was an event unlike anything that I had seen in my life at that point because the movie was in this zone where, wait, what is real? What's fake? Are they real? Is she a documentarian? Are they dead? Are they? It was, there was a lot of confusion about it. And I remember watching her like get humanly airlifted out of the theater by her own security team. She was like surrounded by, she had her own security and a driver because she couldn't go anywhere without being completely mobbed. I, I, that, and again, this theater was home to so many giant names, cool people coming in and out. But this person in this moment, it created a full on frenzy. That's insane. Can you imagine being her? This is your first real film and this is this, this is happening. I mean, that, yeah. I, it's hard to even wrap your head around the scale of it. You know, like when this website was up there, they estimate that of everybody who had access to the Internet in 1999, 11% of them went to the Blair Witch website. 11% of all of wow. the Internet. Can you imagine anything getting 11% of all of the Internet right now? No, but it was one of those things that I felt was, you know, we always talk about like viral marketing. How can you get viral marketing to work and what is it? And it was creepy enough and janky enough that people would pass it because it didn't feel like it was a studio or a movie or anything more. It was like a ghost story that you were passing around. Like, did you hear this one? And I feel like that's why people started talking about it. I remember going to the site as well. You get you got involved in this thing. And I know that later on, and we're talking about this movie in 2021, but you know, back then, you know, there wasn't a mythology. There were there weren't sequels. There, you know, we didn't know really anything. And I was actually wondering, because when I watched the movie the other night, it said written and directed by. Did it have those credits when it aired at Sundance? Because I don't remember the movie having credits. I remembered ending abruptly like these are not actors this was like a but that could have been my own thing that I'm laying on top of it I don't remember either I remember I remember seeing this in a theater and what I mostly remember is running straight from the theater into a car as soon as it was over we and were I remember, scared I was so scared and I remember that my parents had recently moved into a house with like all these glass doors that opened up onto the woods Right. And so I couldn't walk through the living room like the entire time I was at home at night because you look outside and it was just dark woods and giant glass doors and there was no way to cover them up. All right. So I had a completely different experience. I saw this movie and I was like, what the fuck is this piece of garbage? I was like, this is I was like, this is so shitty. I was like this, like, you know, handheld bullshit, not scary until like the final like minutes of the movie. I was I just was not into it at all all like I wasn't I was like I just felt like I I understood what I was watching and I was like now I feel nauseous and that was the oh, big wait wait, yeah. wait you fe- okay wait you felt not okay wait hold on you felt nauseous you felt nauseous because of the movements yes because of that that was the big thing like oh it's gonna make you sick I remember that was like all my friends were like yeah it's fine it just makes you feel like nauseous because the camera's moving in a million different directions well you like, mean just like raw I was like you're psyched up to feel a little sick uh, I mean, well, it was more like I was prepared to be like, like Cloverfield, like sometimes when you're in that first person perspective, it's a little jarring, especially on a big screen. And it felt 
whatever it was, I was like, oh, this is, I'm just not into this. I knew it wasn't real. And then I didn't like it probably because I knew too much about it. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like what I, what I hear in your voice as you're talking right now is I hear a snotty teen punk. If yeah. you do come into this like a snotty teen punk, yes, like, you absolutely. don't try to pull this over on me. I was, you. yes, I okay. was the person who was like, I'm not watching The Sopranos. Everyone likes The Sopranos. Fuck that. I'm not telling <laughs> them watch The Sopranos. And and it was in the same era of like, oh, everyone loves The Blair Witch. I'm not going to love The Blair Witch. Oh. I, I, you know, you it was, mean like, it was I, the 90s and you were darying out on this. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and. I'm not a big horror fan in general. That that's not my genre of choice, uh, or at least at that point it wasn't. Um, and so I went in with a chip on my shoulder. I found it to be like, eh, whatever, good performances, and I never saw it again. Never wanted to see it again. Never had an intention of seeing it again. Um, I felt like it got so played out in like every commercial and parody, and it just felt to me like. What a weird flash in the pan. And then I just stopped thinking about it until we started talking about this series. And you're like, we have to do it. I love this movie. Yeah, I've and been then, pushing for this, man. Yeah. And then what I think I realized was, oh my gosh, this amount of time that has passed, this movie really ushered in a, a whole new trend of horror. Like this handheld, this found footage type of film that... I think people now have really come to love it. It is another subsect in the genre of horror. And I'm sure people out there might disagree with me, but it feels like this is the one that launches that ship. You know, there's no paranormal activity without Blair Witch. You know, there are all these, even the conjuring, well, the conjuring is based on a true story. I guess that's a different thing. Uh, But there is this idea of, what is real and what is fake. And we're just kind of doing a dramatization of it. Like this idea, there wasn't there a movie about like in 1978, the New York city police department, you know, found these tapes of an exorcism. Like there's always this idea, like we're getting, we're getting this hidden footage, this we're, we're getting in there. So anyway, I came in to the rewatch with open eyes and, and, and and tell me that it's amazing. Uh, it is. It actually is really, really good. There are a couple of things I don't like about it, but overall, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic thing. And I think I had the reaction, and I haven't really had this yet on the show, that I think most people have when you launch something unique and different. We talked about this a lot. We read these reviews. Oh, my gosh, this is terrible. It's the death of cinema. You know, how could they be so lazy? It's just, you know, gore, et cetera, et cetera. And now watching it, you know, 20 years later, 21 years later, I'm like, oh, this was the beginning of something so incredibly unique and different. And I was not, I didn't want it. I didn't want it. I was rejecting it. I truly was that voice, those people who just reject it because it's different. I mean, and now, now that we're in an era where it's completely natural that you would videotape yourself all day, every day, Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like the, this movie coming out in an era where people had handy cams, but it was not expected that everywhere you went, you'd be videotaping yourself. You know, that you'd be right. like, hello, it's me narrating my experience. It's me talking to the camera. This is a day when I feel like people were grappling with like, why are why don't they put on the camera? What's happening? Why is there so much footage being shot right now? We we weren't this. This feels like kind of a harbinger to me, not only of a type of horror. 
which I find interesting, but almost kind of separate. Like I want to cut off every imitator of this movie and kind of silo them off to an island because I think none of them do what is good and none of them matter. Do you know what I mean? I think we could live without most found footage if we can just keep this one movie because it's amazing uh, on its own. But yet also I think it's like a harbinger of kind of like a narcissism society that we weren't ready for at this time either. And so we were turned off by the idea that like Heather's crying into a camera where now we're like, yeah, and you could be talking about Britney while crying into a camera. You right. could be talking about the salad you just ate while crying into a camera. Why aren't we all crying into our camera all day? That's how you get hits, right? That's how you make friends. You know, you're talking about a time where, like you said, one site on the internet was able to get 11% of all the traffic, right? That's crazy. That, you know, we're in a very different zone. But the reaction that I had is not the reaction that America had. This movie was a giant, giant hit. I think it resonates more because we are so caught up in documentaries in general. And I wonder if in forwarding horror movies, it also opens people's eyes up to docs because there are docs like, you know, that doc that just recently aired on um, Netflix about the, uh, the hotel in Los Angeles. Like, is it haunted? What happened to that girl in the hotel? There are docs that are positioned as like actual horror docs now. And, you know, there's so many things that this movie, I think, opened our eyes to or opened our culture to, uh, you know, in, in many ways that we probably are accepting of documentaries so much more. I mean, that's the way that, you know, you look at the evolution and you could even make the argument that that's why crime podcasts are so successful right now. We want we are tired of the fake stuff and we want to hear the real stuff and we want to believe that it's true. And if a horror movie is like, quote unquote, real, it's more scary. It's not Jason. It's a rejection of Jason and Freddy. And it's an, you know, it's an embracing of the supernatural and ghosts and what really is out there. It makes you like you wouldn't go home and be afraid that Mike Myers is at your door because uh, not the actor from Austin Powers, that Michael I Myers would also is yeah. be afraid of Mike Myers. Is I at mean, door. Yeah, baby. Uh, but the I would um, be afraid if you were at my door doing a Mike Myers impression. <laughs> it would be terrible like that. Um, but the but I guess what I'm saying is we are always looking for new ways to be scared, and I feel like the Blair Witch is a rejection of the other type of horror, like you know and. And and embracing this new thing of this could happen. This feels real. And and I think all of our horrors moved in that direction to a certain degree. Well, yeah. I mean, think of everything that has been happening in the horror in the last, I would say, uh, 20, 22 years before this film came out, right? In the post-Halloween era. I think Halloween opens the door to a type of horror film that's really villain-focused. You know, like, Michael Myers is really the star of any right. Halloween franchise. Well, you're rooting for them forward. in a way. Like, yeah. you, you, like, like Freddy isn't the bad guy, even though he is. Like, you, you're going because you're a fan of Freddy, right? Yeah. That's why he comes back again and again and again. It's, it, it's you want this unkillable, you know, no, unstoppable right. machine. Yeah. Like two things, I think happen. Not with Halloween. I'm letting Halloween itself, the original one off the hook. Mm -hmm. But once you start getting into sequels, once Halloween becomes a thing that launches sequels, Halloween begetting, you know, Freddy, begetting Jason. When you have horror franchises build up that are villain centered, as a natural result in the 80s and 90s, what we saw is victims being disposable. 
you know, victims right. in horror movies being like kind of lame. Oh, that girl took her tits out. She's going to die. And like right. you went film the, the horror films themselves, I think almost became meaner because you were like, what wisecrack is Freddie going to do as he takes that girl and right. rips, her, rips her stomach out. And horror because of that, I've, I did, I wasn't a horror fan when this movie came out because I thought horror was such a toxic, negative kind of thing. I don't like laughing when victims die. Usually it makes me really right. fucked up and sad on the inside. And so you have Scream come out shortly before this. And it's like, can I show you the ropes of everything you've been watching in horror films? Scream is and, like the pen and teller of horror films. Yeah. It's like, right? I'm going to give you. you a horror movie, but I'm going to show you how you fall for this every time. Exactly. And then, and then I feel like after that, we have like sealed off these, this like two decade period of these kind of horror films that we've been making. And Blair Witch comes in and just revolutionizes everything. And Blair Witch says, forget all of that. We're not going to show you the, the, the villain at all. Like we're going to call ourselves the Blair Witch Project. And I'm going to put the emphasis on project now, you know, more than the witch. Like you're never going to see the witch. You'll, you're just going to imagine the witch. What you're going to see is you're going to see the victims and I'm going to make you care about the victims. I'm going to make you get to know them. I'm going to make you see them in like casual times, sad times, fighting. I'm going to make you think that they're annoying. I'm going to make you think that you would run into the woods to save them if you could. And I think there's something so empathetic about this film in that way. I feel like it takes horror from the villains and gives it back to the victims. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I think so much of horror is based in this idea of what would I do in this situation? Like, and the, you know, those dumb jokes from the eighties, like if that was happening in my house, I would just get the fuck out, you know, like Mm -hmm. that, that idea. But here you're meeting people that feel like you, right? They are, they're in many ways, the biggest conduit and they are trying to get out. They're not trying to go in and they get lost. And I think what's really engaging about this and kind of like the exorcist as well. It, something is happening to them. They don't know how, like they are working to the best of their ability to fix it. Um, which the only part about that, that I kind of, you know, kind of bump up against is that reveal that the guy threw away the, the map. And then I'm like, well, are they all like in this brain fog? Like there's a couple of things I don't really understand about the rules of the universe like are like why are they getting lost why can't they get out are they trapped in some sort of mystical thing but regardless of that i feel like what is interesting about this movie is they are where scream is meta and they're like saying oh in horror movies this happens this feels like we are watching real people react to a horror situation, which I think is incredibly engaging and something that we start to see a lot more in all of our horror films. Like our, like you said, our victims become way more sympathetic. Yeah, they sound real here. I mean, let's talk about the dynamics really quick, you know, of, of who we've got in the woods. So 
First, we've got Heather Donahue, you know, playing Heather. Everybody's playing uh, versions of their name, uh, which they've come to regret. Uh, but Heather, she's the director of this project. She's um, enlisted these two guys, Josh and Michael, to come with her into the wood. She seems to know Josh a little bit better from school. She doesn't seem to know Michael very well at all. But on their website, there is like old snapshots of like her and Josh in an editing studio working on their film projects together. So they were sort of friends. Michael's newer into the group, kind of brought in by by Josh. Heather, in her diaries that are online, I think are really interesting. She writes a lot um, about being aware that she's like the one girl with two boys, you know, and that she's aware that they could team up against her. She's aware that she's um, got to put a lot of emphasis on herself and being confident that like they that they, they would lose confidence in her very quickly if she didn't continue to act confident. And so you can see in her diaries herself kind of psyching herself out for, you know, the dynamics that are going to come. And, and really then Heather taking that idea and kind of building it into her character, like here in the scene where the guys are like, you're lost, won't you admit that you're lost? And she doesn't want to admit it because she feels that pressure of, leadership, you know, probably magnified by being like a female director, which is ultra rare, uh, especially in the nineties, you know, but feeling like I have to do this flawlessly, which I identify with so much. Um, one of the more embarrassing stories of my relationship with my boyfriend is like, we've been dating for a year and I was like, let's go to Tijuana. I want to show you these taco trucks that I love that are only right. in Tijuana. And taking him to Tijuana, and it had been three years since I'd been, and all of them had moved. And we spent a whole day of me walking from taco truck to taco truck, trying to find these like magnificent tacos I wanted him to know. And me feeling like I had lost his confidence in me planning this vacation. And feeling that like, to me, that feeling of like, I was in charge and I screwed up is like the most absolutely gut-wrenching feeling ever. Like I, I value competence so highly and so taking him to like a third truck that had moved, I just almost had like a complete breakdown. <laughs> and and um, yeah, my best friend Eva Faye can back me up on this too. Every time we go on vacation together to Ukraine, I'm like, I mapped this. It's supposed to take us here. I start <laughs> just losing my mind because I feel like you have put your trust in me and I fuck yes. up. And I hate the feeling of, of fucking up. I... I, I I sympathize with that so much. And, and that fuck up thing also makes you less yourself. You Once you start to lose confidence, you make more mistakes. Exactly. And so you start to hear their relationship disintegrate very early on when Mike, the one who knows Heather the least, is like, just admit that you're lost. I know exactly where we're going. Josh feels it's necessary to look at the map now, even though I know where we're going and we're going straight ahead up there. If you've known where we're going, we wouldn't be hiking like... We're in the middle of the fucking How could you Some of it is, because some of it is off-trail hiking. Because people told you, oh yeah, there's a cemetery back in there. We're I don't. lost, admit that first, because... We're uh, not, I know we're not lost. Oh, you knew that yesterday too, and you knew that twice look, today. Look, no, bullshit, and, I, and we have not been lost at all today. That's, not once, not I know where we're going. Okay, this is where that we is, were. Let me tell you what you said to us. It's like two miles away. Then it's like okay, two just, hours just away, chill, three hours chill. away. Maybe it's four hours away. How how could you? Did you I agree to do this project? I, I, I did. I agreed to a scouted out project. I didn't. Agree it is to just scouted out, and I told you that getting Mike, to the Mike, location Mike, okay, wasn't going to be guys, easy. Guys, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Please, you're being a smartass. You're being a smartass. Let, let's just we're looking at the map. We're okay. Find this the best we can. So yeah, then the way that these two relationships play out, Mike at the beginning, you know, the guy that she knows least seems to be kind of like the negative, cynical one. He's the one who does the crazy thing of like, you know, they have that giant map fight where they accuse her of losing it. 
She's like, I didn't lose it. You start to hear things get really heated. And then finally he has like kind of a cackling breakdown and he's like, I threw it away. I didn't trust you. I thought all of this was pointless. He has, he goes to such a point of like cynicism and despair that he's like, I kicked the map into the river, which is such a kind of weird line. Cause you're like, how did you kick a map into a river? What? Like what? Like I can't picture that. Then I can't yeah. picture how he did it or why, but so it's a little bit of a strange plot twist, but it just, he, he has like a breakdown and he's like, this won't work. Fuck it. And then they have this screaming fight where they actually come to blows. You've got to be kidding me. You have got to fucking be kidding me. Fucking get the fuck off me, man. What the fuck are you out of your fucking mind? No, not out of my mind. The map doesn't do a shit. Do you realize? Not to you, but I do. What the fuck that map says? Sorry. You are a fucking asshole. I'm sorry. You are a fucking asshole. And if we map wasn't doing shit all day. If we get hurt or if we die out here, it's your fucking fault. It is your fucking fault. Do you understand? I can't believe you could be such an asshole. But then what I find so interesting about this is I feel like it'd be really easy for these three characters to kind of continue on this path, right? Where you have Heather over here under pressure, uh, Mike over here, like completely loud and faithless and sabotaging, and Josh in the middle doing what he's been doing up until this point, like being a mediator, trying to get everybody calm. But the characters do something really cool where I think they flip. And suddenly Josh starts to be the one who has like a breakdown at a different point and like really collapses like emotionally just completely collapses and gets like angrier and meaner than Mike ever did. And Mike winds up confronting this horror of what's happening to them by becoming hyper-competent and calm. And like, let's figure out who's taking first watch, you know, like let's keep it together. And the idea that this film does show you different reactions to like extreme trauma and tension, I find really clever. It's not just like three people screaming. It's like, it's power and negotiation and betrayal and peacemaking. And can we get through this together? Maybe we can't get through this together. It's so complicated in their dynamics. Well, you know, I think for a movie that lacks a lot of scares, like there are some spooky things in this movie, but it really builds to this end piece. What I think you're engaged in the entire time is this drama. Like this is, who are you mad at? Whose side are you on? And it is a it is a distillation of something that we really haven't seen in a film where you you have people arguing about what to do and who is right and who is wrong and and there is an element of this movie though too where you feel like even though things switch Heather is definitely I feel like viewed as the villain like and that's really unfair but I think there's like a little bit of misogyny throughout but we also know that they have this past relationship that they're kind of working out there's a lot going on here, but there's something that was really interesting to watch how easy it was to to gang up on her. And I feel like if she was a guy, I don't know if I would see that same dynamic. Yeah. I mean, how interesting is it to cast a woman in this part as the director, you know, and right. not have her be like camera person or sound person to choose to have her be the director. And I think, I think the film is definitely like engaging with misogyny. I don't know if it has anything in particular it's saying about misogyny, but I think it wants to include that as like a dimension. I mean, like Heather's diaries, she says things like, you know, they need to know that I'm in charge and I have the ability to do so. And that means no waffling. You know, that she also just includes kind of like random stuff in there that makes it feel really extra real. She says that at one point, like Josh had the idea that he wanted to stop and build a fire, like in the middle of the day and hope that the smoke would get a plane's attention. Or she talks about like 
the day that they leave um, to go on into the film, she's like, she mentions, and this is so 90s, she's like, I'm still burning from the chimichanga I ate at Chi-Chi's last night. You know, like it, it's, it feels really, it well, feels there, really real. I mean, there are a couple things here that are really interesting in the sense that this movie is improvised, right? The characters are being put into scenarios. So when Heather finds that piece of flannel with the tooth in it, you know, she's finding that. She's documenting that. Like, they shot this movie over eight days. When, you know, when Josh Leonard is taken, he was, like, taken away from set. And, you know, they recorded his voice screaming in a recording studio and then played that in the woods. Everything that you're watching, they didn't know. They had a safe word that they could use was taco, very close to your chimichangas there. And they could get, they could break out of character. But it seems to me that they didn't use that often. They really took this as an acting exercise. And one of the things I heard about this movie early on, which I kind of loved, was the way they were able to run their audition process was very simply. You walk into a room and the minute Heather walked into the room, they said, why did you push that man down the stairs? And wait, I'm sorry, what? What do you mean? And everybody who didn't just jump in and go, I didn't push him exactly. He tripped and he fell down the stairs. And that, like people who immediately jumped in and took whatever they said, that's who they started to whittle down the process to. Like people who could immediately respond in improvisation. Because you said that you read that casting notice. It was It was about grabbing them immediately and making them react in the moment. So I think a lot of the dynamics that we're seeing at play are from the personalities of these actors. You know, yes, they have these characters and they have these these roles, but I think the reason why it feels so natural is because there's an element, I think whenever you're improvising and you're improvising for such a long time and playing characters that are ultimately grounded versions of yourselves, you're going to see parts of your personality. And I think that that really resonates. And that I think that why that might be why like misogyny is underneath it. It's not like it's not coming out on top of it, but there is an element there of... Why are we trusting this person? Does she really know? And yeah. and the cast is eating less and less every day. Like they stop feeding them because they're like they leave little things out in the woods for them to eat, like so they wouldn't starve. But every day they give them less and less food. So by day seven and eight, when they're filming these scenes, they're also in cold, hungry. And so you're and they are doing this movie. They know they're in a movie, they're taping themselves, but you can see how that even creates a tension in the improv, like whatever anger that you're getting out of you, you really are watching yeah. people fight, argue and plot and plan. And not sh- shower to be honest. Like to me, yeah. that's one of like the really pivotal things is, you know, have you ever had like one of those travel days where you're traveling for like 25 hours and you're in public in planes and you never get to shower? There's a part of you that feels like horrible. And that's just after a day, I think of like traveling, like overnight train trip. i Whenever I've done like long train trips and stuff or long plane flights, there's like that moment kind of 36 hours in where I break and I, I catch myself like washing my face in a bathroom sink in public and being like, I don't care who's looking at me. I'm dirty. I right. have to take care of my needs. You know, in 36 hours in, you break and you do things that you wouldn't have done a day and a half earlier because you're like, I need to feel fresh. I need to feel human. And here they're not showering for eight days. Like that is like right. a, a complete breakdown. Like I'm around two guys I barely know. I haven't showered for eight days. I'm really, really hungry. I mean, there was an idea that they were going to maybe have like some romantic intrigue into the script. Yeah. But like, I think Heather Donahue was like, are you kidding me? We were so filthy. Absolutely. That was never going to happen. Like it was never, it never felt like natural to add any kind of like, I love Josh now. Kind of right. like narrative. Like, 
Because like, I think there's something powerful about feeling dirty and gross, like in Hulk. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say, like, there's an element of, like, why are people having sex in the middle of, like, a Jason and Freddy movie? Like, hey, I'm so scared. Oh, he's going to come. Let's let's bone. It's like, you're not going to do, you know, like, that's not yeah. something that happens. It only happens because you're making this kind of a, a film. I just think that also, just in my experience of working, that the first couple of days are always so much fun. You know, you're getting so into it. And then, you know, and then it becomes a job or it becomes this other thing or... You know, when you are covered in blood or muck or you can't get anywhere, they're so isolated. They can't talk to anyone. They're not really leaving set. You know, they're on set. They're, they're, we are capturing like a travel video of these people too. And they don't know what's going to go on. And they are probably getting legitimately spooked. I mean, you are supposed to see the Blair Witch in this movie. Um, one of the cameramen, you know, um, the I'm forgetting the other guy's name, not Josh, but... Um, Oh my oh, gosh. Mike? Uh, Mike was supposed to pan to the left to capture. They had set it up. So like if he panned his camera, he would capture uh, the witch like is shadowy in the woods. But he just didn't get the shot and they didn't go back and get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like in the scene that I think really freaks you out when you watch this where they come out of the tent. It's like, I don't know, night four, maybe. Right. And you just start to hear Heather scream. Take the video camera. No, get the dot ready. Go fucking go! Hurry up! I'm coming! My boots aren't laced! I mean, to me, that's like such a distillation of why this film works. You're scared because she's scared. Like you have bought into her and like yes. hearing her voice break like that. You don't have to see the witch. Like you hear her breath, you hear her panic. And to me, that's like absolutely plenty. But, and, and I, and I love that as like a test of the audience's empathy. I mean, God, empathy is really what we've been talking about. Like we were talking about that with Raw last week too, you know? What right. can a horror director do to get empathy out of the audience? You know, that horror is like taking characters and putting them in extreme circumstances and making us give a shit. I feel like that's horror when it's at its best. Absolutely. You see yourself in this moment. And I, and I can't help but feel that every actor started to buy into what they were doing. Like I know that they knew they were in a movie and I know that there were certain little bits of communication between the director and the actors, but I think you really are watching them get freaked out. They are getting surprised. It's like, they're not putting it on. It's not like take 10, you know, it like when she sees that tooth in the flannel, it, it, like it is like, Oh God, what, what? Like, like she doesn't know. So you are getting, I don't think you could make this movie. <laughs> now under the protocols that you have to kind of make movies or, or guess maybe you could. I mean, I sign a release before I go to like immersive theater experiences and yeah. you have to be okay with people touching you and doing things. And, you know, and, and it's such a, you know, you're okay. You're, you're in for a penny or you have to be in for a pound and like, but you're agreeing, like I'm going along for this experience. And I have to just imagine that uh, by day four of 24 hours straight on set, you're losing your mind. Yeah. Like you're losing a little bit of your mind. I, I don't see how you couldn't be. You're not getting any sleep. I mean, I think they're trying to make them lose their mind. It, when you hear about the filming of it, it reminds me of 
our platoon episode. Remember platoon where we like, um, where we interviewed uh, Dale Dye, that like mm-hmm. military expert uh, yeah. who, you know, talks about kind of coming up with this, this idea of like taking your cast and putting them through hell so that they understand what you're doing. And Dale really being the person who kind of started that and then it becoming a trend and then you know, Tropic Thunder even getting made about it. But the producer, Greg Hale, like he also had military training. And I think he was probably thinking of Platoon when he decided to do something like this. Like he himself had to go through what he calls um, survival, evasion, resistance and escape training. And that's where like he himself had to go to the woods and like have guys chase him for four days. And he was like, well, I did that. Why don't we do that here? You know, and like he did that. Specifically where like they would show up him and a bunch of crew members at like three in the morning every night, you know, and they would just have gotten to sleep because they would need to sleep. And that's when the guys who actually had hotel beds would kind of quietly creep in using camo, ridiculous camo, like the pictures of them in camo are so funny, but they would, you know, stack up the rocks and they wouldn't hear the rocks get stacked because they were were so exhausted at that point. And they would just start breaking trees and smashing like poles, like uh, smashing branches against trees and like doing whatever they could. And they tried their best, except for the guy dressed like a witch to not be seen, to make them feel extra freaked out. I mean, I think because they had so many people in the woods, it adds that disorientation because you're not hearing a sound come from one place. You're hearing like four guys. I think it grew five guys, six guys, seven guys all around you. I don't see how you could not be scared to death. Even well, if you I mean, know you're making a movie. Well, I mean, the other part of it, too, is you have this character that disappears. There are three of you in the middle of the woods. If you don't know one of you is going to disappear, well, maybe the next one will be taken. Or is it going to just be me? And you don't know if they're going to come back. How will they come back? You know you're shooting a harm. Like, there is also that idea, too, of being prepped for as an actor and as somebody that, that is literally trying to react to everything. It's like there is, uh, I don't know, I... I I really appreciate a lot of it. I think where the movie to me falls flat is only in in moments where I feel like they exist too much in the panic where it's sort of like I like the more isolated stuff, I like the uh, the quieter stuff, the breathing, the looking, the like not the full blown fight, like the the fight on the bank to me. I keep on going back to that fight. It just felt like it felt too performative. Like there were a couple moments that felt like, oh, do we need a more, like it felt like I was watching like an improv show, like, or something like that. Do you, did you feel that at all in this watch or no? I felt that in a couple bits. There's like the one part where, um, we're right after they find the bunch of twigs, but before she's opened it, you look yes. at Mike and Mike is kind of rocking back and forth. There's something about the rocking back and forth. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, that's too movie. That's well, that, right. That, that was really the only scene that I was like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to buy that. I I think you're right. I think there are a couple things where it's like, and that's what made me question. Well, what's the logic here? Like, what is the logic? Like, what I know the story of the Blair Witch. And by the way, I have to. I I don't know this for a fact, but I have to imagine that when they went around to the town and asked them about the Blair Witch, that was that was just getting people like Jimmy Kimmel does on the street to basically yes and something that they thought like, oh yeah, I did hear about that. Actually, yeah, no, 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 I did. Like, because there is something really interesting when you put a camera and a microphone in someone's face. Like, did you hear about this thing? Like there's um, Darren Brown, a great uh, magician and illusionist and hypnotist, did this amazing special one time where he went around this town and told everyone that this one statue at a child's park was lucky. 
And he's like, oh, you hear about the lucky statue? I'm here. I'm doing a report on the lucky statue. <laughs> and then everyone started going to this lucky statue and like leaving totems on the statue. And then like, oh my gosh, I touched the dog statue and I got luck. So there's this idea that like you can implant an idea in people's heads. And I feel like that opening feels very much like that. Like these people are agreeing to a myth that doesn't really exist. Yeah, some of those people are plants. Like the woman who's playing Mary is actually weirdly not an actress, but the intern on the film. Oh, um, wow. They hired her as an intern when uh, I think it was the prop guy went to go pick her up one day and he realized she lived in a house with an American flag in the window and a fence made out of sticks. Like he just saw oh, that. Wow. That's actually the, her house. She actually lives like that. And he oh, was like, if gosh. I had thought about it, I would have like made more sticks. Um, by the way, the whole stickness of it is really funny. There's actually a video of the moment that like the prop guy, because he was like, I need something creepy. What do I do? What can I make this really simple? Because I have like a day to make 50 of them. Yeah. Um, he invents the stick man by seeing like a picture of it in kind of like one of these creepy books about runes. And when he shows it to um, to like the rest of the crew, they're like, what? But then, of course, the sticks become like such a totemic image of this whole film. Anyway, back to the actors. So um, there's a video I found from this year where somebody tracks down the mom and the baby who get interviewed. Do you remember the mom and the baby? They're like, I yes, think my yeah, yeah, yeah. Interviewees. Um, here's them talking right now where the mom is trying to talk about like what she knows about the witch and her daughter's like putting her hand over her mouth and like disturbing the whole interview in a way that feels so real. Her daughter's like picking her nose the whole time. The daughter's maybe two, three. The creepiest, <laughs> the creepiest story <laughs> kind of about moment, her that I ever heard was that two men were out hunting uh-huh. and they were camped near the cabin or something that she's supposed to haunt no, uh-huh. no. and they disappeared off the face of the earth no. really okay it's all right ingrid i'm just telling a scary story but it's not true it's not true i love that you did this deep dive on these people because it really is a fascinating opening it totally wrecked my idea that these are all uh just people like kind of going along for the ride well yeah okay so the mom it's like the 20 minute interview. I pulled just like a couple clips okay. but, and it's very sloppy. Uh, the mom's like talking all over the place, but in w- they're recording, this video is actually taking place right at that same intersection where they're standing at. So you're watching the mom and the baby. The baby is now like a, I don't know, 24, 25 year old girl who's wearing like a corn hoodie. And she tells a story that like she went and met corn and she told corn that she was the baby in the Blair Witch. And they're like, whoa, that's cool, bro. Um, <laughs> but the mom basically says like she was eating at this diner that was on the corner And Heather and Mike and Josh come in with their cameras and they're like trying to get the locals to talk to them and nobody will. And this mom, because she's like a mom and because she's a teacher, she's like, oh, these poor little students, let me help them out. And I thought I felt too bad for her. I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just ask your questions. I'll make something up. She goes, really? I said, yeah, I'll make it. And I just literally made up everything on the spot. I mean, it, wow. it, it was... How were you guys chosen to... Because I went over to her and said it was complete coincidence. I mean... Oh, so you weren't like an actor at the uh, time? No, like no, auditioned or... You just... The right place at the right time? Right uh, place at the right you're time. You're kidding me. Thinking I was helping college kids with their project. Truly, that's So that I was thought. just off the top... You didn't off even... Top of my head. Like the directors didn't give you like any notes for what the lore was? Nothing. Wow. Isn't that funky? So, so believable. Though, because what you're witnessing, Amanda, what you're actually witnessing in her is a panic attack. Ingrid had some serious anxiety when she was a child. Like, 
neurochemical. She was trying to get you to shut and up. She was really trying no, to get totally me. She was. She grabbed your face. Did not want me to. Yeah, stop. No. Which is perfect. Want me to, it, it worked. Good job. So I thought, and then I thought, okay, <laughs> oh, as, as she's doing this, I'm thinking, oh, God, she's ruining the film for these kids. Yeah. What can I do? What can I do? So I tried to work it in so that it would work. And that's when I said, I'm just telling a scary story. It's not true. And then I'm like, it's true. And yeah, like, I mean, like, Heather has said in interviews that she just thought this would be like some tiny film that they would see on a VHS tape. She was not expecting this to be like a movie, you know, it was more like a, a project, like an exercise. Uh, and of course, like the mom and the baby were not expecting for this to be like a $250 million movie. So this is how the mom found out that her like random ass cameo while she was eating breakfast became like a big deal. Walking down here and la-di-da, I mean, we go about our life and two years later, the film comes out and I get a call from a friend of mine in Texas who says, oh my God, you didn't tell me you were in the movies. You were in a movie. My God. A huge And I'm like. You know, I'm a child of the '70s, so I'm thinking, "Oh crap! What? Oh, what? What, <laughs> what did somebody find?" <laughs> I, I, I panicked for a second, you know, and 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 they said, "Yeah, I just saw you on Good Morning America." What? Then my phone started ringing like mad, and, and that's how I found out that it was a real film, and that I did hadn't helped two college kids, three yeah, college kids, was, with their, it was a real film. That's how I found out the truth. So they really, yeah, I guess you know the the sloppiness of that scene and like the way that it feels so real. To me, that's just so perfect. Uh, it, to me, it's like the sloppiness of this movie. It's the moments when I like it better, when something happens and it doesn't even necessarily make sense. I love that they zoom into like the bag of marshmallows when they're at the grocery store, which is also it's just also just such like a 90s been caught stealing type of moment. Yeah. Uh, we got rice, we got Mott's fruit punch. Oatmeal raisin, baby. I feel like to have like a movie where you care about the actors, you should take your nine seconds and zoom into a bag of marshmallows. Or one of my favorite weird moments is, um, you know, they're having this breakdown uh, towards the end. And Mike is saying like, well, we're never getting out of these woods. We need to prepare for these people to come back. And Heather starts giving the most ridiculous explanation as to why that won't happen. You have to... I know. You'd... Rationally say they, they might they might very well go on forever compared to our footsteps. Not not possible. Not possible in this country. Not, not possible. possible. Because oh. this is America and it's not possible. We've destroyed America, most of our natural resources. Let's just keep going. I mean, I just have to say, like, Heather being like, the Blair Witch won't come back tonight because we live in America is Uh, such a mental breakdown moment that I adore. I adore that. It it just feels like somebody being like, I don't even know what to say. I'm saying this. I'm clinging to literally anything. And then the guy's just making fun of her and singing the Star Spangled Banner at her. It, it that's so sloppy that it makes everything to come feel even better. Well, that to me feels like the, uh, the fun of like improv, right? Like it's sort of like we do say things like she's trying to save face. She's trying to be the director and trying to keep them feeling okay, you know, and we are in a world without, you know, for all intents and purposes, we're in a world without ghosts and ghouls and witches and everything like that. So like, you're trying to make sense of it. And I, I love it. It's such a sloppy, fun thing. And like, that's where the improv to me is like, is really 
great. It and is. how they gang up on her, too, is great. Exactly. You know, I think there's one more moment of improv I really want to point out. And that's when it's a moment. I don't know how you felt about this. If you thought it was a moment where the film was becoming too artsy or self-aware. But, yeah. you know, it's um, it's a couple. It's like the morning after the what the fuck was that scene where they're all really freaked out. And I think it's Josh takes Heather's camera. You know, up until mm-hmm. this point, Heather's been filming in the color camera and Josh has been filming in the black and white. And later on, it gets switched where, like, I think Mike is holding the color and she's holding the black and white at the very end, at that very last minute. But up until then, everything we've been seeing in the movie that's been color has been, like, us looking through Heather's point of view. And Josh goes on that kind of, I don't know, digression about this is how Heather's seeing the world. She's only been seeing the world through this camera. And there's this kind of conversation about what's happening in the film around us. You know, like, this idea of a filtered reality. I see why you like this video camera so much. You do? It's not quite reality. Reality says we gotta move. No, but it's totally like a filtered reality, man. It's like you can pretend everything's not quite the way it is. Just leave him alone for now. I mean, I want to talk about that idea with you for a little bit because, yeah... In that scene, it is a commentary on what's happening, but it also made me really stop and think on this rewatch. Everything we're seeing in this film, talking about it being real, you know, when like found footage, it's still kind of not real. We're still not seeing what they saw. Like there's almost no way a camera can ever capture the horror of what they saw. And the idea that we're still not getting the full picture. Like there's this documentary that just came out um, this summer. It's called All Light Everywhere. It's by mm-hmm. the guy who did Rat Film. Did you hear about Rat Film? Rat Film was like a documentary yes, about yes, Baltimore. Yes. The guy who makes these documentaries, his name's Theo Anthony. He's like brilliant, like a young guy whose documentaries have bibliographies at the end of them. And um, All Light Everywhere is about uh, cop cameras and tasers. But mm-hmm. it's really about like the image, like what we see, why do we trust what we see? And there's a detail in there that blew my mind, which is like he goes to the factory that makes the body cameras that cops wear. And the guy is explaining that they deliberately make the body cameras kind of bad because if they, they could totally use the technology to have like infrared on the camera. So you could have night vision. So a jury could see what was happening at night. So we have to make cameras that show like everything the cop didn't see as much as we're showing what the cop did see. And I hadn't thought of it like that. It really kind of scrambled my head upside down. Oh, wow. That they're not trying to make the best Right, image. because our eyes are not the same as cameras. Like, we can't see in low-light scenarios the same way a great camera can. Yeah. That's really interesting. Isn't that crazy? Like, to, to think about that, that we have the technology to make better body cameras, but they're worried it'll, like, hurt the cops testifying if the jury feels like they know material that the cops didn't know. And then, you know, a- applying that kind of real life horror of found footage to this movie that's grappling with like, what do we see? And I guess like now you make a found footage movie and you know, you're grappling with questions like this. What do we see? What are we looking at? And I don't know, this movie I think is coming out so early that it doesn't have time to have that conversation. It doesn't know there's going to be a big conversation, but there is. And I think we can talk even more about the Blair Witch today when it comes to like, who do we identify with and what's on camera and what do we not know? Like, what should we know that we don't know? Or what do we, what should we be aware of that we will never know? Right. 
Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. But the myth is... There was this per I mean, the the very bare bones of it, right? There's this person who was murdering children and that's that and and they arrested him and and there's strange things that happen in this forest. I want to find out exactly what happened with this person. But that's all that we know. But there are certain points in this movie that feel way more supernatural than that. Because it's like the Blair Witch, but it's also like, wasn't it a man who was killing all these children? So like, who's the witch? And like, why can't they find their way out? Like, why are they walking for 15 hours in a circle? Like, what what are these things? And it there is there something more supernatural about it? They don't answer that question. I'm not asking them to. But when you think about it, I don't know exactly what the rules are here. Yeah, I mean, I think the witch was screwing with them in the compass. Like, that's what okay. I definitely think. I think the witch... But who is the witch? Okay, well... Kind of the theory, and I think a lot of this is also just based on what I've read on the website too, is that, you know, 1785, there was a woman in the, who lived in this town back when it was called uh, Blair. Right. Um, and her name was like Ellie. And so okay. Ellie was um, banished She was from the, the witchcraft. Town. She okay. was the witchcraft. She was like drawing blood from children and they banished her during winter and they just presumed that she was dead. And then, you know, there's ideas that she cursed the town and over time, like the town of Blair became the town of Burkittsville. Um, but it seems, I, I kind of like the vagueness cause you're like, is she possessing people? Is there just well, that, some sort of yeah. evil? Was she possessed? I think the vagueness to me is I never saw the sequel and probably the sequel Neither, explained yeah. it and I don't care. I don't want to care. Yeah. I don't want to care either. Yeah. So I like avoiding the sequel, but to me that, yeah, it does feel unclear. Like is, did she start the evil or was she herself a victim of the evil? Well, because there is this idea that after that, it's more about this, in 1940, these seven children are reported missing. Their bodies are found inside the cellar of Rustin Parr. And then Rustin Parr is executed for his crimes, um, who, you know, one of the kids escaped. And then you're like, okay, so I guess I was tracking more of the Rustin Parr story. Like, it felt like the documentary was about this Rustin. And that's where the end of the movie and, you know, the, the movie ends up in Rustin Parr. So is it like the witch was banished to this house and her spirit like possessed Rustin Parr and then Rustin Parr killed these people because at the end, the reveal is we see, uh, you know, we, we, we hear that Rustin Parr made these children stand facing the wall so they wouldn't see him or be looking at him as he killed these other children. And so that last shot of the movie is you see one of the filmmakers, you know, with their face towards the wall and that's like the last, yeah, Mike. And it's such a, a, an amazing, great image. It's that that is that sequence is so fantastic. But yeah, the I think, unexplainable nature of it makes it so terrifying. Yes, and and I guess like you know I can rail about like I don't want to know all these sort of things, but I think there is something interesting about like when he's shaking like that or when he kicks the map, is he being possessed by the witch? Like, and that's what I was kind of trying to draw. Like, I don't know if the movie is that. 
is he being himself or is he being possessed? And that's what I can't quite figure out. Like when he's shaking like that, is he getting possessed? Are, are there at any point, is it like the thing where people are getting, you know, infected by the spirit? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's, I it's wonder. A, yeah. right, okay. So like, okay. Well, one, that house is covered in little kid handprints, right? Yes. So, which is so creepy. And I, I also love that just being like, I don't know what that is. And I don't even have time to question it. I am running and looking for my friend. And is he dead? Uh, I mean, I've read an interview with the directors where they they were like, it's the kids who have been stalking them. Um, so the fact oh. that there's so many different noises in the woods is because there's so many children out there. Because they do seem to walk through the kids' graves when they walk through those first pile of rocks. There's like seven piles of rocks okay. and seven children. And so that's kind of why when you see the three piles of rocks, you know that they're all three going to die too. Uh, the, the numbers all match up. And so they were, there's a director reading where they're like, they have like entered the house and sort of freed the children from this curse or something like that. I don't really know. I think that sounds a little bit dumb. It doesn't seem like they really knew it was going to happen either. They shot a bunch of endings they didn't use. Like there's an ending supposedly where you see Mike crucified on a giant stick man. Right. Which a little overdone. We don't need it. Yeah. Um, I mean, this ending from one thing I read is that it was also an accident that she captures him standing in the corner. She wasn't supposed to be filming him. He was there kind of hiding to get out of the way. And then because it was in the shot, they were like, actually, that's kind of cool and creepy. So they went back and the one interview with the townspeople, they didn't film, you know, that like yeah. Heather and Mike and uh, and Josh didn't film themselves is the guy with the backwards baseball cap who adds in that detail of like, yeah, the kids, they had to face the corner. So the directors went and filmed that in to be like, we want to keep Mike in the corner at the end. So we'll lace that idea at the top. So I imagine that that, it probably was very confusing for the audience to be like, what's going on here? Because you just see somebody standing in the corner, but they were able to retrofit a scarier ending by giving you that piece of information in like the day of reshoots that they did, which I think is really kind of smart because they took an image that is creepy and just gave it just a little bit, it, it, I think it hits a lot harder. I can only imagine what it was like to end the movie on that without having the, the context of it. Well, yeah. I mean, you see a dead body, you see a dead body. Like you see yeah. a lot of dead bodies in movies. You see a guy standing still with his nose in the corner. You don't see that. And it's so much more jarring because it's completely unpredictable. And it tells you that yeah. something is very, very wrong. Like, but a happy accident. Thing, I mean, what I mean, like the last thing he should be doing is standing still. Right? Yeah. Like he's in, he's in this fear and panic and he's, and I think he's reverting to being a child, you know, which is kind of the most, one of the most scary things. Like, sure, you could cut off someone's toe and hostile or, you know, make them scream, but to feel like whatever this thing is could make you into a child. And, to be and under be, control like that. Yeah. So under, he's thoroughly under control. I mean, this yeah. is a film that I would say has two iconic images. That's one. But the main one is Heather Donahue in a tent saying goodbye to people, apologizing. You know, I I don't know what they call it, the snot shot or whatever, because her nose is running. Oh, yeah. But like her single take crying, you know, sounding so broken. I mean, I want to actually listen to that because like, I think that this, I'll just say, I think that Heather Donahue is like, brilliant in this movie. I think she is absolutely brilliant. I think like if, if people 
knew how brilliant she was if the marketing hadn't been so much like, is she real? Is she alive? Is she dead? Like if this was a movie that people could have considered mentally at the time for Oscars, which I think they were not able to do. This is like, this is like Oscar stuff, man. I think she's amazing. Let's listen. To Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. And I'm sorry to everyone. I was very naive. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. Because in spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything. I insisted that we weren't lost. I insisted that we keep going. I insisted that we walk south. Everything had to be my way. And this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry and cold. And hunted. I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I'm gonna die out of here. But that scene, I think, also became kind of the curse of it because it was so iconic. And so I think, like, brave. I mean, how many, like, Oscar nominations has Viola Davis got for letting her nose run in a scene? You know what I mean? Like, Viola Davis lets her nose run in a scene and she immediately gets an Oscar nomination every single time. Like, Heather Donahue does that here. And it's just parodied in, like, every single dumb movie. And it makes you think that Heather did a bad job when Heather did a brilliant job. And the scene is iconic because she is great. But there's something in it where we're like... Isn't it embarrassing? Like her nose was running. It's it's such an unattractive angle. And it takes away from the power of her performance, which 20 years later, I'm so mad about now. I'm like mad in it with more clarity. You are 100% right. Watching that scene, it's really subtle. It's well-performed. It builds really nicely. And I talked about like how I feel like some of the improv in this feels a little like schmackty, you know, um, but this is not one of those scenes. But the parody, the memification of it really has done a disservice to it all because I remember this was like in a feel like a, a Snickers commercial. Like it was it wasn't even just parodied in the scary movie. It was a joke. And it was like the boogers were getting bigger and you forget like what's real and what's fake. We talked about this a lot on the show, like these moments that are a lot more subtle when you actually see them in the film, but because people respond to them in such a way. And it is one of the most iconic shots. I mean, maybe that's more iconic than the, the wall standing, but she does such a great job there. Um, and I just want to go back to the idea that just like in the exorcist, she found it really hard to get work after this movie. People did not like her. People wanted, like, and the other guys didn't get that kind of treatment. I think that she was the villain here, or 
you know, even though she is the lead and and kind of the hero and and is trying to do her and best the victim, to get yeah. and the victim, yeah, and trying to get everyone out. You know, she retired from acting in two thousand and eight. There's something where she, you know, can't escape this thing. Like people don't like her, and this is maybe the idea that like Linda Blair had too. Not that Linda Blair like people didn't like her, but when you become so closely personified as like a conduit of the audience in a horror film. Can we accept you as anything but that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's a few things going on here. I mean, number one, this character that she's playing, this character of the director is so unusual in, in film. Like what this character does, what Heather does the first like half hour of the movie Mm -hmm. is she talks continuously, like continuously. I am not sure there are that many Hollywood movies where a female voice is talking that continuously for 30 minutes, you know, like talking over people, interrupting people, being the director, you know, like making fun of people, making fun of, you know, like Mary, after they interview Mary, the the woman who kind of tells them a little bit about the witch. Um, You know, she has... She demands the attention and she demands like authority, you know, and she's like clearly also kind of the star of the documentary. You know, you hear a little shift in her voice here when she puts on Heather documentary. Yes. Yeah. This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town, much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time, to us anyway. Yet legend tells a different story, one whose evidence is all around us, etched in stone. But what you you do not really see in movies is you don't see, like, you know, two guys getting bossed around by a girl for this long. You don't hear a girl taking up this much space in a movie. I really think that's like an uncommon thing. And you don't have a character who is this challenging to be around, you know, who doesn't, who is so realistic, who doesn't want to admit when she's wrong, who isn't playing nice, who isn't like, oh, oh, you tell me what to do, sweetie. Like there's nothing in her that it fits, especially like when you compare to like movies of the 90s. There's nothing in her that fits like how we usually see women in the 90s in movies up to today. And so I think she was so unusual that she rubbed people the wrong way on purpose. And I think she's doing it on purpose. I think she sees Heather as an annoying person who's like kind of losing her mind, but really cares and wants the best for everybody. But she sees her as a person who talks too much. And I think like it made people hate that character because it's just unusual in every single way. Do you know what I'm saying? I, so, I, I do. Yeah, I'm just, I think you're making a great point. Like, I yeah. mean, she's she's getting penalized for being a good performer uh, in this character. Perf- yeah, people are like, I hate her, and you're like, but you're also saying like, I hate hearing women talk too much and boss people around, right? Because it's weird. It's just not what we hear in films, you know. And these guys seem kind of likable, schlubby. Like, well, she's annoying to me, you know. And yeah, she she screws up, but like. She takes all of the blunt of playing this character so well that, like, 
it kind of kills me. And like, it's really interesting, like watching her whole like interview cycle when this comes out, you know, I think she handles it as absolutely as good as she could. You know, she's making jokes about how weird it is for most of the first year. You know, she goes to South by Southwest and people are like, you're Heather. So you're real. You're alive. You know, imagine getting like asked if you're alive constantly and then people being kind of sad when the answer is yes. Yeah. What is that? IMDb listed her as missing. Yeah. IMDb, like, they, like this, these are... That's crazy. Yeah, you do amazing work and people are like, you're missing? So she's at South By and she's like, actually, I'm not Heather. I'm like a bionic replica made to look and sound just like her, only cuter and more marketable is what she huh. says. Because she's aware, you know? She's aware of what's happening to her. And then she goes on like talk shows when the show is a hit and she has to deal with questions. Well, like this one from Craig Kilborn, who's basically like, are you even acting, bro? Like they were just scaring you, right? So you weren't even acting, right? And she has to stick up for the work that she did being an actress who came out of nowhere and isn't really media trained. Here's here's the deal. What do you think acting is, Craig? Well, this is an important question that comes up a lot as regards right. this movie. And I have but to sometimes tell you, you, you were not you were not. Sometimes they will think of something from their childhood that would make them scream or cry. You were actually experiencing something that was freaking you out. Well, like any time that you have a nice well put together fictional circumstance it makes it easier for you to believe in but however you know if i woke up one morning and there was a pile of rocks outside my door you know i wouldn't really be crying about it you know you do have to sort of so they they just give it that little extra push right they they did not tell you what they were going to do no we always knew they were going to do something we just never knew exactly what that thing was going to be so when you put all of that together and then like after this she's just asked to be in like bad horror movies. Nobody sees her potential as an actress. You know, she's like, she looks, she she was saying in interviews at the time, she's like, listen, I don't look like the actress they want to be leading movies. I look like a character actress. So they don't have anything for her to do. She's doing like dumb horror movies where she has to like put her mouth around like gas pipes and stuff and like die all the time. And so she basically like, I think around 2008 is like, screw this. Like nobody's taking me seriously and taking my potential seriously. So she burns everything in her house. She burns like all her mementos of this and of acting. She takes the flannel shirt that she's wearing here in Blair Witch and she gives it to just a homeless man uh, on the street. And she's like, I'm out. And then she like moves to the woods to sell weed. I think we did her really dirty. That's what I'm saying. That was what that whole rant was about. We have done Heather Donahue dirty. I totally agree. I think if you look at her next to Josh Leonard, they are viewed very differently in our world, and Josh Leonard is still a working actor, great, uh, yeah. lovely guy. You He's know, in a great movie mi- called Hump Day. Yeah, uh, with Mark Duplass. And, um, but like Heather in 2002, she was in this science fiction miniseries Taken. She was nominated for a Saturn Award, you know, but there was this idea about the movie. And this is the thing that's really crazy. And it, it, it's where I'm coming from as the original viewer of the film, not the viewer of 2021, where this is a film that is is winning or nominated for a Razzie Award for the worst picture. It got and an worst f- actress. Worst and wor- actress. Yes. What are they talking about? And I think what we're saying is I don't like Heather Donahue, the character in Blair Witch Project. She brought these guys out here. She fucked them over. I think if it was a guy, it would be a different situation. I do think so. But, and, but I think that people cannot disassociate this from real life. That's what she is. That's her name. That's it. And you're done. And it shows you sometimes the problems of being too good as a villain. I, I think you could find that people like Robert Patrick had that as well. You know, I think that 
when you are an amazing villain that people are scared of and it becomes iconic, you're fucked. You know, Robert Patrick definitely has made strides in different directions and done a lot of other stuff, but it takes a while for you to get over, you know, this idea of, no, no, I know you as the bad guy. The reason why I'm scared of you is because you are actually a good actor. Or the reason why I don't like you is because you're a good actor, not because you are, yeah, you, you literally are so these things. You have so good, you have made me hate you because I can't tell the difference. Yeah. I think that the directors did these actors dirty. In an attempt, this is the first virally marketed movie, right? We could make that. It, it may not be the first found footage movie. It definitely isn't. Um, but it is the first stuff like cannibal Holocaust earlier. Yes. Yeah. One of the things they actually did too, is they had a documentary on television, like right before the film came out, they call it the curse of the Blair witch. And it was done like a true crime documentary that did not wink at all and say any of this was a movie. I mean, here's the trailer. Like this is a documentary you watched on TV and you would think, Oh wow. The Blair witch is a documentary film. The Blair Witch Project, the most intense theatrical experience of the summer, has spawned the most frightening investigation on television. I don't feel too comfortable seeing the last few days of my brother's life on video. Sci-Fi presents the uncensored investigation, Curse of the Blair Witch, Monday at 10 p.m. I mean, do you think that's responsible or do you think that's like smart hype or what do you... I mean, I think that what they tried to do was... The reason why this movie made so much money is because we bought into this idea that this is potentially real, right? And and we've been seeing all these movies where things could never be real. And now all of a sudden, wait, this is real. And, and you know, if you catch it, uh, a glimpse of it, or you hear about it, or maybe you don't hear the whole thing. I think that's what brought people there to the film. I don't think people were there like, oh, you got to see it. The Blair Witch is so scary. Like, I mean, the actual witch. I think people were like, oh my God, is it true? They became a conversation topic, right? Because not everyone's checking IMDb. Not everyone, everyone's like in the loop, you know, knowing all this sort of stuff, especially at that point. Um, so I do think that there is like a really fun, I think it was really smart marketing across the board. It's what people strive to do uh, now to figure out how to get you engage that it's a must-see film. But this is the first ever virally marketed movie that I think put the actors on the chopping block and and elevated the people behind the movie instead of the people in front of the movie. And because we're told that they're missing, because they put up these signs around town. Now, the crazy thing about this, I don't know if you heard about this, was like they... Um, they were putting up all these flyers in Cannes that said missing, missing. All the cast was missing. And the flyers were taken down the next day because it turned out like a television executive had been kidnapped, uh, you know, the day before and it was taken down out of respect. Uh, That executive was found. Um, But people were mad that Heather potentially killed these other two people because if they saw her around, they're like, you killed Mike and Josh even though they're alive and they're, I don't know what it is. Maybe we were at a point in our society where we were not able to separate an actor from their role. Cause now I think it's like, okay, Addison Ray is on TikTok. Now Addison Ray is a star of a movie. Now we see people that are in commercials and on TV and in movies and over here. I'm a wrestler, but I'm also an actor. I go back to wrestling. You know, it's like, we are, you know, I'm a superhero sometimes, but I'm a nerd in another thing. Like we're all in. I'm Miley Cyrus now. I'm Hannah Montana today. I think that there was a naivete 
to our culture at that point in 2000. Look, we're still freaked out in 2000 that all of our computers are going to stop working because we didn't figure it out and then nothing happened. Yeah. Right. You know, so there is a naive point of view. We weren't all on the Internet. If this was on the Internet, I mean, in a bigger way where social media is a part of it, we would be debunking it immediately. We can't even have an opinion on the internet before it's debunked. If you want to say something about Joe Manchin, they'd be like, well, actually, in 19, you know, it's like everyone is Wikipediaing and reading an article and posting a headline and it would get out there and the, the allure of this movie would fall away very quickly. But it was in this one sweet pocket, this one moment of time where the actors, I, I, and especially her, really, really suffered. Yeah. And honestly, hearing you talk about it in that way, and here you use the word naivete, a word that she uses here. It's kind of like she's the scapegoat for our entire country being completely naive about all of the hell that we're about to unleash on the world. Yeah. You know, the world starts to go to hell pretty much right after this. Um, and it it feels like that. It feels like we always talk about the 90s as being kind of like a decade where nothing really happened and we were making movies, you know, where trash bags are beautiful because Kevin Spacey doesn't know if he wants to work in a middle-class job the rest of his life or like whatever. We were like, we were calling it all the death of history. And instead we don't realize we're like balanced right on the precipice of like a huge shakeup in all civilization um, because of things like the internet, you know, and Heather Donahue being the naive person, you know, playing a naive character becoming the face of the internet, I think, in so many ways. You know, I think that what face, happens to all that of us image, with the yeah. internet is Heather and the internet. And you know what? I'll yes and you, since this is a movie about improv, and say, regarding Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez calling themselves writer and director, part of me wants to say, I don't think this movie had one. I think you guys were producers. I think you guys, like, set up the conditions of this movie. I think you guys cast the movie well. I don't know if I want to call them writers or directors, honestly, at a certain point. You know, I think they set up circumstances for this. But I think giving them, I think they get more credit than they deserve for what Heather and Joshua and Michael did. I totally agree. I did a movie called Blackballed, The Bobby Duke Story, which was a improvised movie. Um, and I always thought it was very interesting because we had an outline that I helped co-write. Me and Rob Cordry co-wrote the outline with the director. Um, and you know, we shot a tremendous amount of material. Like I feel like we shot like a hundred hours of material that was cut down to 80 minutes. If anything, if anyone was a, a writer on that movie, it would be the editor, uh, you know, to kind exactly. of, exactly. The editor it, also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to pare it all down. But it is interesting when you do a movie with improv, I, you know, the league was a show that was improvised, but you know, had heavily scripted plots, uh, just like Curb, it, it, everything kind of blurs the lines. And Yeah, but there's um, nobody here saying take two. They're making that decision for themselves. That That is true. That is true. And, and you know, but there's also eight days of footage, 24 hours a day, you know, that, yeah. you know, and, and then they, you know, what did they put in? What did they not put yeah. in? You I know, would I think say that makes yeah. it like an, a, a producer and editor centered movie. Since they also edited the movie, I wish they just called themselves editors and producers and left it undirected, to be honest. I feel like that feels more fair, but what they did. Say? I mean, and they look, they did give Heather uh, a credit for like documentary footage, but it's also like the whole thing is documentary footage. But look, it's splitting hairs because I think the idea is a genius idea and 
they were, they figured out an amazing way to create this environment. And I think, you know, I don't want to just shit on them because I think what they did was revolutionary. And we talked about That's this, like true. not only they not only did they create an amazing viral campaign, but they also figured out a way to keep actors in the woods for eight days without direction, but with enough direction to move from place to place to get the things that they want. And even, um, you know, figure out how to make sense of everything. So, you, you know, know when- I think where my grumbling is coming from is I think it's centered in the idea that I don't think we give producers and editors enough credit, period. I agree. And so I think that's kind of where I'm coming from is everything they did real, really well is what also a great editor and producer would do. And so I think I'm just trying to be like, those it all blurs so the lines. Important. Yeah, it blurs the lines because I think you can look at a movie like a Christopher Guest movie, which is also the same idea. It's like a mock doc, right? Um, and they're improvising, but it's Christopher Guest controlling, you know, creatively what's going on. But you remember all these amazing parts and like Wood waiting for Guffman be, you know, as good without Fred Willard or Catherine O'Hara. Like, no, it. But they bring so much to it. I think when you get into improv and you you basically are like, I think a director in a film that's traditionally made is steering the ship, right? It, it's guiding under this one idea. And I think when you're doing a movie where a lot of people are getting to add their own things, like you're creating the best buffet plate possible. You're like, okay, I'll take a little bit of this. I'll take a little bit of that. And, and that, yes, you are essentially putting together the final product because there's a, probably another cut of this movie that's not so good. There's probably another cut of this movie that, you know, where Heather looks a different way or, you know, they're, they're, I just think when you have so many pieces, it's hard to parse out because the idea is really genius. The casting's really genius. And that's definitely because of that team that puts this together. Um, I think that the acting is really good and the writing is really good. And that's because of the actors on screen. And then I think the final product, because it's not an unwieldy mess, is because of the care they take in editing it. So it's it, there's you couldn't take away one element or say, that oh, well, they are better or they're worse. But I do think it's a lot more collaborative than I think a lot of people gave it credit for and also even understood it to be. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think like if. We lived in a world where all three of these actors had gotten more credit for their work. And if we also lived in a world where we really talked more about like the work that producers and editors do, I'd be less touchy about like the word writer director. I think part, maybe I'm just angry at how much weight we put on those titles anyways and act like they're the geniuses, like controlling everything. Yeah, I don't know. What I think makes it tricky is truly it's a bunch of unknowns. So we are understanding the world through the lens in which they tell us. And I don't know if those two guys really got out in front to give a lot of props to the actors. Maybe they did. I'm really talking on my ass right now. But but the fact that you would list them as dead or missing on IMDb is a little bit like, I don't, I don't like that. I don't love that as a I don't feel like that's like respecting your actors. I think that that's more about just trying to make your make your movie the most successful thing. But I don't know. I'm 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 mixed. I don't have a I, I have a, I have like a <laughs> Again, very like I'm Raw, pushing and like pulling. The yeah, hype ahead of the movie kind of tampons what happens yeah. in the movie. It's I mean it. I don't know. Part of me feels like it's sort of a tragedy all around. I mean like Eduardo Sanchez has said that they didn't even really want to make horror movies. You know that wasn't supposed mm. to be their genre. That there are people who wanted to make like more. I don't know. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop type of stuff. But then like horror is the easiest way to break in because you you know don't need as much money and because people just sort of watch a horror movie at random with a lot more 
openness than they'll watch a comedy at random. And, and yeah, you get trapped. You get famous for a thing and you just get trapped and you can't break out of it at all. I mean, by the way, if you look up pictures of Eduardo from this time, he has a really sweet 90s soul patch. There's a lot of like little 90s things when you go back and look at the making of this movie that I just adore. You know, even even the cinematography, like the way that the film is edited at such a clip, you know, the way that it cuts back and forth from color to black and white. I mean, so much of it reminds me of watching MTV when I'm a little kid and there's this kind of certain sort of 90s sense of humor that I enjoy revisiting in this movie. It's it's kind of becoming a more of a period piece as the time goes by. You know, watching these guys have an argument about Gilligan's Island, you know, that's capped with like, yeah. well, actually the captain, you're calling him the captain, he's the skipper, is one of the most 90s things to happen. I love that. It's such a, a film. cheat. I mean, it's such a Quentin Tarantino conversation. We all wanted to be like Quentin Tarantino and have those same moments, you know, those same kind of dialogue. Like it, it feels like it feels like a, a self-aware in a way as actors that they're doing it. But it also felt like capturing what people were talking about at that time, too. Like, you know, yeah. you know, breaking down pop culture in a way that was, you know, more uh, scholarly, you know. <laughs> exactly. But by the way, this is Gilligan's Island. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they're although, trapped on this island by yeah. whose fault it was and who's going to be the leader. I mean, in many ways, it's a <laughs> foreshadowing. Uh, well, and, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, I know that we were talking a little bit about like the logic of it all, but I love the lack of logic here because I think the idea that they could walk, you know, 15 hours south, looking at their compass, knowing they're walking south, wind up right back where they came from. The idea that there's absolutely no explanation for that, I think, doubles down on the frustration. Well, and, and, and I will like say, that, like, it yeah. doesn't make sense. And to me, there's almost nothing scarier than that feeling of none of this makes sense. I feel responsible, but none of this makes sense. And I will say that that I think that the directors agree with your point of view on that. They were like, people may not understand this movie, but if you ask them if they were scared, they would say yes. Like that was a quote that was in Entertainment Weekly. And I feel like that to me is a good horror film. It works. It was very effective. Everyone, I guess what I feel about this movie is Everyone did their their best job. It's all in the release. And once it goes out into the world, you can't stop how people are going to interpret a film. Like, it's not the fault of the filmmakers. The acting was good. The film is good. The idea behind the film, the way they shot the film, all super brilliant. But once you give art to the world, they will then judge it. And then it will become something else, regardless of what you wanted it to be. All of that makes this movie look even worse by comparison. It absolutely does. And it and none of the found footage horror that comes after this captures at all what this movie does so well. You know, what this movie does is it, it like operates on its own unique rhythm of horror. There's not a single jump scare in here. The whole movie no. is waiting for a jump scare that never happens, which is worse. It's staring into darkness and trees and nothing ever comes out at you. This is why I can't handle like Annabelle movies is you just know exactly when Annabelle's going to be like, boo. And so who right. cares? You're like counting it down. It feels like you're, it feels like you're listening to a song that you've heard on repeat. And there's nothing in here like that in Blair Witch, you know, that you can't predict any jump scares, that you can't predict what's going to happen, that the camera itself, you don't know where it's going to go, what it's going to look at. You want it to be looking at something else and it won't, you know? It's looking right. at a tree. It's well, looking I mean, at some white I, jackets. And you can't see anything. You just see blackness for so much of the scariness. And I think that found footage, I don't know why they did it. They made it look prettier. They're like, oh, but let's shoot it, but it'll look great. And we'll have some lens flares. Like, what on earth are you doing? 
it has to look real or it doesn't work. And you know, it has to be messy or it doesn't work. What we may be discovering in a way is we want to be more mentally tortured than, you know, look, and there's probably two schools of thought on this. Like there, for every hostile and saw, there is the other school, like which is where I kind of live. I live, I enjoy more of the psycho and I enjoy movies like this. I enjoy movies that I'm tense, but I'm not watching someone get like ripped apart. Um, and I think that they start this line of the anticipation of the scare is actually more scary than the actual scare. So you're on edge the entire time. You feel like you've been on a uh, on a ride, and it's sort of the same idea of like going through a haunted house. Like you know that things are going to jump out at you, but the time where you're the most freaked out isn't in the moment where they jump out at you. That's the release. It's in the okay, are they there? Are they there? Are they, you know, like you, yeah. you don't know. The release is the moment where it happens. And this movie doesn't release. It just just turns up the pressure, the pressure, the pressure. And then we don't even get the fulfilling end in the sense of, and they were murdered. We don't know. They're missing. We don't yeah. know what happened. And clearly Josh is alive. He's yelling. He may be being tortured, but he's alive on some level or he is still breathing um, and so is Michael. And so when the movie ends, they're all alive for, you know, and that to me is also kind of revolutionary. Do you think it affects anything that Heather doesn't tell Mike that she found Josh's tongue? That like he runs into that house, not knowing how bad it could possibly get. I mean, she keeps that from him. You know, she keeps stuff because she doesn't want him to have even more of a breakdown. I think that that, I mean, I think you would probably do that too. Like there are moments where I don't share everything with June because I know that in a moment, it's not the right time to do it. Like, right. But I think if I was going to run into a house, I'd be like, yeah, maybe, uh, hold on, wait a second. But I don't know. I don't know where people's minds are in that moment. I don't know. I don't know. You know, overall, I'm really glad that I rewatched this movie because I had no desire to ever rewatch it again. I feel like the movies have been really sullied by their sequels. Um, and that being said, I've never even seen them, but it's sort of like, it just seemed like everything went on expanding the universe and not kind of figuring out more interesting ways to expand the technique or do interesting things like this. I feel like the most interesting thing about this movie is the incredible way that they went about making the movie. And now, you know, the Blair Witch franchise lives more about this time. It has become a Freddy adjacent. It's become a mythology. Uh, and that's a shame because you would hope that, that they'd find other ways to reinvent the form, but they think there's so many great ones out there that do found footage projects. I mean, for me, I'm always one that loves to talk about End of Watch. I think End of Watch is an amazing, it's uh, Michael Pena and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal film about two cops. We talked about cops earlier and it's all told through their body cams um, and, or a majority of it is. Uh, and it's a beautiful, cool, interesting film. Um, there's a lot of interesting ways that people have used found footage to tell more personal films. So I, I so I look to this movie as saying like, this is, the harbinger of our future. And, and I say that in the way that we kind of shuttled off Heather, the way that we've created viral marketing campaigns, and the way that we kind of redefined horror. Everything about this movie was the beginning of something very, very big. Yeah. And because honestly, right now when a new story happens, everything is found footage. You know, mm -hmm. you're watching 
the Instagram uploads of like the the hiker who was murdered. I guess it's uploaded footage is what we have now. Like people, when they disappear, leave behind traces of themselves everywhere, which we didn't have in 1999. But We're now amateur detectives. Leaving. Yeah, we are a found footage society. I think it brings justice to people who would never potentially be under the microscope. I mean, we wouldn't have what happened in this last year in many respects, you know, if we didn't have footage of George Floyd, you know, we didn't like the, didn't have footage of Ahmaud Aubrey. Like we, you know, there are so, and, and there are so many countless other names that I'm not mentioning. I'm just saying that the idea that we are found footage being a reporter, being a, in part of the action, not only is something that we are using to forward our society to be better, to hold people more accountable, but also to, uh, you know, for entertainment. The every documentary, every one of these podcasts is like, let's get in, let's tell the story, let me go there, let me talk to them, let me live this life. You know, Murders in the Building is a parody of that. Like, we are so into figuring it out, you know, figuring out and getting in there. And, 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 uh, I, I think that this movie is, is really, it's so interesting to me in that, in the way that it, it just has populated our entire, our entire, I wouldn't just say entertainment, just the entire way that we view the world is now through a camera lens. Oh gosh. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. You watch this movie and these are people not used to seeing the world through a camera lens. It feels like the majority of our media right now is, you know, put through the lens of somebody else holding the camera. And the question of who's holding the camera and why are they holding the camera? Questions that you hear in this film, you know, like they're yelling at Heather. Why are you still talking to us on camera? I will just go back to my original thought. When I first saw this movie, the big takeaway was, ooh, be careful. You're going to get nauseous. It's so like the camera is so jittery. I I didn't even register the camera being jittery. Because I'm so used to the camera being jittery, you know, and that to me, and it's only something that I can kind of, you know, describe within myself, like, oh, wow, I've become so accustomed to this thing that it's not even, it didn't, that's not one of the things I'm like, oh, we could talk about the camera work. Mm, It didn't didn't seem weird to me at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's a complete non-issue. Complete non-issue. Which is scarier than anything. I mean, Paul. There is even the ultimate test of has this movie reached popular consciousness saturation? There was a porn film, a porn parody called what? The Bear Wench Project. Uh... There's a trailer for it on YouTube with no titties, so I pulled a clip. Back in town, legend has it that whenever you get near to where all this happened and you get near the Bear Wench, you start getting sexually active and sexually just out of control. And then evil things start to happen. People have known to disappear up here. People have died up here. Never, ever, ever returned and never saw them again. We're here to see if this is a true legend. Monk! We're here to document the Bear Winch Project. Honestly, they not only was there a Bear Winch, there were many Bear Winch sequels. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, there's so many, there are so many... <sighs> So many parodies. I mean, there are like, did you see the Bogus Witch Project? You know, where it's uh, someone sticking a finger up somebody's nose. The Ah. Erotic Witch Project. The Blair Thumb, which is just, you know, that weird series of movies where it's like all on thumbs. Um, 
you know, there, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, uh, I think they did a Scooby-Doo version of it as well. Uh, you know, so many, so many parodies, so many parodies. Uh, that it, it, I think it actually does fuck up the actual movie. Too many parodies. Now, we know it's nominated for a Razzie for Worst Picture. We know that it has an 80-something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and it makes all this money. But I have to imagine that some people were like me, um, that they were like not, they did not buy into this thing. They thought it was dumb. Some posh people, uh, like Andrew Saris, uh, the legendary film critic who wrote this pan for the New York Observer. And as I read it, I actually think that we can hear some of that um, Heather Donahue targeted misogyny uh, that we were talking about. So here we go. Uh, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez's The Blair Witch Project represents the ultimate triumph of the Sundance scam. Make a heartless home movie, get enough critics to blurb in near unison, it's scary, and watch the suckers flock to be fleeced. This fictional documentary within a pseudo-documentary may be the most overrated, underfinanced piece of film to come down the pike in a long time. Incidentally, when did Scary become the highest commercial accolade a movie could receive? Not that The Blair Witch Project struck me as particularly scary, even by infantile standards. Where's the suspense? Where's the involvement? Where's the identification? We know from a printed foreword that the three young filmmakers are doomed, and by the time I got to know them a little, I didn't much care what happened to them. Go back, I kept saying to myself, go back. But Heather, the bitch, was in no mood to listen. Wow. The anti-feminist backlash spectacle of a pushy female leading two comparatively inoffensive males to be slaughtered by persons unknown and unseen gives the audience a ready-made scapegoat for the disaster. The audience is so agitated by the hysterical screaming of a female character too full of guilt and shame from her fatal incompetence for us to ever identify in any way with her plight. Then uh, Andrew Saris admits that um, he just has a problem with horror film in general. He says, I must confess that from the age of five, I have no, I cannot remember ever wanting to be scared by a movie. For me, the only truly frightening premise for a horror film is to be found in Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Why? Because dreams are among the few things we can never control in our lives. And the idea that our dreams can invade our existence with homicidal impunity constitutes a waking nightmare. Wow. Interesting. What a weird take. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating reading that and being like, oh, he thought the men were just like completely inoffensive and not at all part of the problem. Like what? Yeah. I know. Wait, wait, what did you, what, it feels like you just didn't see anything. I didn't identify with anybody in here. I didn't identify with what was happening. It feels so cold to me. I mean, I feel like I see that criticism a lot, especially in films with a lot of like female characters, pe- people being like, I couldn't identify with anyone, didn't care. It's like, well, that's on you, man. Like, you're not trying to empathize. And if you can't try to empathize, what are you even doing in a movie? You know, it's, yeah, I, because I, it's like, the idea is like, I couldn't relate to this woman because she's a bitch. So I can't empathize. And it's such a weird thing to be like, <laughs> to, to, in, instead of saying like, she's being a strong, confident person. She's not making, she's like, going, ah, ah, you know, she's yeah, not that. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I tripped over my heel in the woods. She's like, I have fucked up and I want to take responsibility now at this point. And I'm appalled. Oh, anyways. Uh, so, yeah, dumb review. But I will say his last uh, stanza kind of stuck with me. That if he thinks the only frightening premise for a horror film is to be found in Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street, I kind of want to do A Nightmare on Elm Street. What do you think? I like this idea because we've been talking about the death of that type of film. And we really haven't 
really gotten to explore that kind of pop horror 80s uh, genre. And it's honestly a movie I've never seen. Well, then I can't think of a better way to close out our horror month. I love it. And But Amy, before we officially close the door on this, I want to ask you, would you send Blair Witch to space? I honestly might. I honestly I might. think I mean, on the rewatch, I might as well. Yeah. Like, honestly, very early on uh, when we were doing um, the first season of Unspooled, you know, we had that live show that we did at yeah. the Overlook Film Festival about like what horror films should go onto the onto the list. And I was agitating hard for uh, Night of the Living Dead. And Sam Zimmerman uh, from Shudder, brilliant guy, was agitating for Blair Witch. And I was like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And he's dead on. Like, I think you I think Blair Witch in retrospect is going to seem as magnificently done as Texas Chainsaw. I feel like they have a real Texas Chainsaw energy. I totally uh, agree with you. I feel the same way. I I mean, maybe we could do both, but yeah. I'm shocked that I feel this way. Uh, So there you go. But I want to think about it. I want to have the week to kind of uh, wrestle around with it. But until then, take a listen to the trailer to A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is available wherever you stream your films. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet. But something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah! Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. No! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Unspooled.